welcome. Thank you for the support thus far. It's been fun to see it see it go. So we are recording in Lewistown versus Fairfield today. Yeah. I was traveling and so I brought along recording stuff and, and popped in here at the ranch to catch up with Jackson, who was heavy in a project. As I'm sitting here looking at Jackson, it looks like he's used his t-shirt to clean up the shop floor where oil was spilt. <laughs> that is not that is not wrong. So what do you got going on? Oh, so in the shop, we are doing something that I have always wanted to do. And this is going to sound so backwards to you guys, because what I'm doing in the shop right now is technically every owner operator, every owner operator's nightmare situation. But it's something I've always wanted to experience, something I've always wanted to do. And I'll explain why it's been hard to do, but everything lined up just right. And I'm doing something that's on my trucking bucket list. And what that is, is you guys just dying to know, huh? Like spit it out. Come on. I'm overhauling an engine in my own shop here at the ranch. And we're, we're just ripping it. We got her all tore down and we're thick in it. In fact, I got the oil on my, I literally laid in a pool of oil on accident on the shop floor right before Luke showed up with the equipment to record. And so as we speak, I do have some motor oil kind of seeping down my back here. So if you're looking, wondering, what, why is this on your bucket list? Here's, first of all, why it is a nightmare scenario, okay? So truck engines typically, you know, they'll run for a million miles. One million dollars. <laughs> Wait, wasn't that on Austin Powers? Is there a, there's a joke about that? No, I couldn't tell you. Do I don't even know if I've seen those movies. Really? They were when I was in high school. They were kind of the thing. Anyway, you should get a million miles out of your truck engine if you take good care of it, if you treat it right. And at a million miles, that engine will get wore out and it's time for an overhaul, meaning you literally pull all the pieces and parts off of the engine. You pull the guts out of the engine and you replace it with new ones. Very expensive, very expensive. Used to be back in the day, $10,000, $12,000 was kind of an overhaul. Nowadays, the, the range on the cheap, cheap side, about twenty eight dollars to $30,000 would be on the cheap side if you took it to a shop. And I'm talking the cheap side. On the high side, some of those guys out there that run those Caterpillar motors, whoo, you know who you are. You're looking forty dollars to $50,000 to overhaul your motor. It's <laughs> no small thing. And this is why everyone, when you hear overhaul, if your mechanic says anything about it may be time for an overhaul. You're like, no, 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 no. Because you, you just don't have the money. Everything's tight. And you're like, no, no, this, this literally could spell doom. Doom for, for truckers. But it's something that I've always wanted to do. Is this a cat motor? This is not a cat motor. This is not a cat motor. So I'm, I'm, saving, I'm saving money there. And this is a Detroit diesel. More specifically, this is a 60 series Detroit diesel from 1999. Okay. So as truck engines go, I'll just give you a quick rundown. As truck engines go, you have three major manufacturers that kind of dominated trucks from forever. That landscape's changed a little bit in recent years, but I'm talking, you know, the good old days up till about 2006 or seven. You had Caterpillar, which make a lot of construction equipment. You see bulldozers and excavators and all that stuff. That's Caterpillar. They made an amazing engine, very expensive. The parts are extremely high priced. They are not known for being real efficient, but they are known for extreme power, great horsepower. Then you have Cummins Motors and Cummins, that's what dad had all over the years, rooster run uh, Cummins Motors, big cam 400 Cummins Motors. Cummins is middle of the road. I've always been partial to Cummins Motors. <laughs> oh, did you hear it? Did you guys hear it? I was educated that they're not Cummins Motors, by the way. Cummins. Uh, Cummins. Yeah, it's one of the... There's a few phrases out there that get misused. And like one of them, for example, we should talk about this. I'm going to, I'll get back to Cummins in a second, but I can't tell you how many times I've gone in to sign or to buy something. You run your credit card and the attendant slides the receipt over to you and they say, I need your John Henry. <laughs> <laughs> have you experienced that? I don't think I have. I don't know. I, I think I'm just a magnet for it because it bothers me. I run into it almost on the weekly. I could swear on the weekly traveling around the country. Someone's like, 
Hey, sir, I need you, John Henry. Now, do you know who John Henry is? I know in our little town of Fairfield, it was the, it was like the bar restaurant. <laughs> That's true. I totally forgot about that. It, it was, it is. It was our local tavern back home. Also, John Henry was a, uh, was an old railroad fella known for robust power and ability to drive railroad spikes like no other human. Okay. And he somehow, I don't know how, but somehow John Henry has been, as the years have gone by, he's confused with John Hancock, who was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, wrote his name, just huge, takes up like half of the page, right? So the phrase is supposed to be, I need your John Hancock, because it's a huge signature. So sign the receipt, sir, your John Hancock. But I hear it all the time. I need you, John Henry. And usually I don't have the energy to say, you know what? We should have a little chat about this. Do you have the energy to correct Cummins? I'm Cummings versus Cummins. You had the energy with me. Yeah, I did. It's probably because of the family connection. I'm always a little tentative to point that out to a stranger. You know, you guys, Cummins, C-U-M-M-I-N-S, Cummins. Sometimes the G gets slipped in there. And that changes the pronunciation to Cummings, like your old classmates growing up, the old meat cutters. Remember the Cummings? I do. So, yeah, let's keep that, keep that in mind, everybody. It's your John Hancock and it's your Cummins motor. Those are two things. If you take nothing else away today, just put those in your pocket and, uh, and walk, all right? Third motor. Third motor. Detroit diesel. And Detroit was kind of this in-between love child between they had pretty decent power. They weren't quite as strong as a, not nearly as strong as a Caterpillar. Pretty on par with the Cummins, but they set them up to get amazing fuel mileage. And nowadays with fuel prices, those, those old Detroit motors are really starting to look nice because fuel is really expensive. So this is what's in the shop. It's a 1999 Series 60 Detroit. Okay. Can I ask you a question about these motors? The different truck companies, the Freightliner, Kenworth, Peterbilt, Mack, International. Could you find all three of these motors within one company or did each truck company kind of stick with one motor? It's a great question. You used to be able to. This is another thing that's like the good old days were better. It used to be you could buy any truck you wanted with any of those three motors in it. They all, they, each manufacturer had a deal with each engine manufacturer. And you could buy a, you could have a sweet looking Peterbilt, right? The old classic long nose 379 with the Series 60 Detroit. So it'd get some decent fuel mileage. You could look classy while you were getting some mileage. That all changed, you know, some years ago. And I, I may have this just a little bit off kilter, but more or less, generally speaking, I'm not generally speaking, Cummins is for Kenworths and Peterbilts nowadays. And Detroit is for Freightliners and Western Stars. And uh, let me think here. Volvo makes their own motors. It, it used to be you could get a Volvo, same thing. You, Volvo had a deal where you could get a cat motor in a Volvo. You can't do that anymore. Cat doesn't even make engines anymore for semis. But it just used to be, you could just get what you wanted to fit your deal and it, and it just worked for your deal. But now, no, you're pretty much limited to a Cummins. If you want a classic truck, it's going to have an ISX. and if you're going to buy a Freightliner, it's going to have a Detroit in it. And if you buy a Mac, it's going to have a Mac engine. Volvo makes their own engine. And a few years back, Kenworth and Peterbilt started making their own engine called a Packard, which is the parent company. Kenworth and Peterbilt, this is another sad thing. They're the same company. So if you buy a Kenworth, it's the same as a Peterbilt. They're all Packard is the company. So... So I'm far away from that. I have a, this truck that we have in the shop is a 2013 Kenworth and it has a 1999 Series 60 Detroit in it. And when I bought this truck, I had no history on the engine, brought it into the shop, kind of went through some stuff and ran it for a while. I knew that there was no history on the engine and the purchase price reflected that. So it was no big deal. And as I've used it, I've realized that it's, it's kind of getting tired out and I wanted to overhaul it. So I, I finally, this last year, decided this is the, the time and the season and things lined up just right. I personally don't have the know-how to overhaul an engine, 
But I do have a friend, James Cox, from back east, lives in North Carolina right now. And we, we became friends on Instagram like forever ago. Clear back when Instagram was like the, the wild frontier. He's the first mechanic that I think that I ever started following like in 2014. And we became good friends over the years. And I floated this idea that I've always wanted to overhaul an engine, but I need someone that has the wisdom and the knowledge to come to my place and spend a week to do this. Like, who are you going to find to do that, right? Things just lined up in his, in his life to let him come out for the week. So he's been out here and we're doing this together. And it's, it's been really fun because I like to learn. I like to know how these things work. Did you hit a deer with this truck in Utah? In Colorado. In Col- this is the truck you did that with though. Yes. Right before you got your... While my bumper was in a warehouse in Colorado, ironically. Because it was right before you put the, <laughs> right. the deer guard on. Right. So I had bought this truck in Kentucky, brought it home, started hauling cows with it because my other truck was in the shop and I'm, I'm cruising down south of Denver. I think I was down around Pueblo, Colorado, if you know the area. Pretty deserty, cruising through the night on my way to Texas. And just like, just like a flash, this huge buck runs out. I was on the freeway. It's, I mean, it's like busy freeway down there all night long. This buck jumps out and I just smash it. And when you hit a deer, <laughs> see, there's this moment between the collision and when you get stopped where your common sense is telling you, this is, this is bad. Like, this is going to be bad. But somehow you're like the denial part of your brain is like, no, 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 I bet it's fine. I bet it's fine. I bet it's fine. And so as I'm slowing down, I'm like, I, I bet it's fine. I only have 600 more miles to drive with these cows that are in the back. I bet it's fine. I pull off the road and jump out and I can just hear it. I didn't have to look. I can hear the antifreeze just gushing out of my radiator all over the freeway you know, on the exit ramp. And it was in that moment that the denial side of my brain had to take a hike and I had to deal with reality. (laughs) (laughs) So the long and short of that was I was stuck there in Pueblo for like three days, wiped out. My bumper was gone, wiped out my radiator, my charge air cooler, and spent several thousand dollars there staying in a hotel and finding a shop that would get me in to patch me up. So then I got home and I was a little upset because I had ordered a bumper, a big deer killer. And, uh, you know, you see, you guys have seen them out there. We call them deer killers. They're the big old, like the big mama bumpers that you see on front of trucks. That's what I had ordered months before. And this was, this might've been during COVID. I've lost track of when COVID even began. I lose track in my memory, but there was no bumpers available. So I get home, I call the company, which was Alleyark uh, out of Canada. And I said, where is my bumper? And they said, uh, it's sitting in a warehouse in Denver. Should be ready anytime. It's actually in transit. <laughs> it's like, you want to hear something real ironic? <laughs> I just destroyed my truck about a hundred miles south of there. Wish I had known that it was there. I had gladly stopped and picked it up. Or I could have come up from Pueblo and just picked it up and, and put it on in Pueblo and had it at least. But that's the same truck. Okay. I thought that was... So seeing it, when I pulled in and saw it sitting in your shop there, I thought that was the one. Yep, that's the one. This is another thing with, with truckers that I think it's really important for those of you that are in the transport world. It's really important to just get to know stuff. We've talked about this before, but take the time to understand, like, where does the diesel fuel from my, and it's as simple as this. When I put diesel in my tanks, where actually does it go? Like, not just, well, yeah, your engine burns it, but like, how does your engine burn diesel? Like, where does the fuel go between the tank and the engine? And like, you need to just gain that understanding. And when you turn your Jake brakes on, you know, the like we all love that sound, right? What's happening? Why is, why does my engine go into like beast mode and make everyone like, woo, clap at you coming down the hill? Why does it do that? That's stuff that I've always felt driven to understand. And it helps me so much on the road because when something seems awry, maybe I can fix it. One thing. Two, if I can't fix it, when I call the shop, I'm like, well, it's when I'm, you know, doing this, it seems like, you know, the, the Jake breaks, you know, what you understand what's going on. You can, you can describe these things to your mechanic really helps them with their troubleshooting when you, rather than just dropping your truck off and saying, I don't know, it's just running weird. 
And they're like, could you be more? Nope. It's just running weird. I don't know. It's funny because I have James down here in the shop. We were talking about this yesterday and he goes, he goes, I had a guy bring in. It was, I think it was a Warner driver came into his shop back East and he's like, yeah, it's just, just doesn't have the power. He's like, anything. Cause no, when I just get on the gas, it just, it's just not there. Uh, okay. So James goes, I got in the truck and I fired it up and immediately he goes, immediately you can tell that one of the injectors is completely not working because you could hear this knock when injectors go bad. You can just hear it. The engine gets this really rough, like it's running, but it's like, mm, this isn't right. And he goes, oh, how did you not hear this? And the driver goes, oh, and he, he pushes a button on his radio and all of a sudden, he has this huge sound system under his, under his bunk bed that he just runs nonstop. <laughs> so James is going, how can you not hear this? I mean, this is like, this is outrageous. And he's like, no, I just run these subwoofers all the time. So I don't hear anything. And he's going, it's just another one of those things. that's like, you know, get in tune, understand how things should sound, understand where things are at. So this is, that's what's driven me to put this truck in the shop and be like, nope. I'm going to overhaul it here. Yeah, it's going to save me some money as well, but it's not so much about the money saving right now as much as I'm just, I'm just dying to see all these major components come out of my engine and get to just sit there and quiz James as we work together to tear it down, replace the parts, and then build it back up and hopefully have it running by tomorrow. Been a fun little journey. I remember once a trip to Sioux Falls. I think it was one of our family vacations, actually. So when we were kids, we get a family vacation once a year where the whole family, there were six kids. We all got into the, the cab over that Jackson's talked about and we would go to Sioux Falls unload to come back and get a stay a day or two in Rapid City, which the Black Hills, there's plentiful. Dude, it was like dreamland. Dreamland. They had uh, waterside, wa- reptile gardens, reptile garden or oh, the bear, bear country, bear country. And do you remember the maze? The huge maze? Maze. And then Mount Rushmore is there. Mount Rushmore that's, is there. That's when you're a kid, that might not be as entertaining. They had that chuck wagon oh, yeah. place where you, you went in and it was like an indoor arena, but they had wagons and like kind of a show where they're running wagons. Yeah, like a the, din- it was like a dinner theater. And, yeah, then they, they fed get like just a, a chuck wagon, you know, beans and beans and biscuits and whatever. Yeah. Anyway, we were on a family trip on the way out there and that freeway was constant road construction and they had cones up and only the right lane was available and someone was merging in and the merges all had yields on them and they didn't yield and so dad had was kind of forced into that left lane through the cones and one of those cones if I, this is so long ago i think it it ripped a fuel line loose on the bottom of the truck yeah could all, it do that yeah, yeah it could. okay because all the all the old fuel tanks have a 90 degree elbow right on the bottom they don't nowadays they're different but back then it was 90s right off and like anything fly up from your tire and boom. so immediately dad knew from whatever he heard or saw that there was problems so pull over on the side of the freeway and this is this is out you know in the middle of south dakota Somewhere between Sioux Falls and Rapid City on I-90. No cell phones. None. So that, see, having cell phones has changed a lot of things because you're almost anywhere a phone call away, but pre-cell phone, you're over on the side of the road. And I remember dad crawling under there and spending about an hour. And I don't know how he rerouted it or what he did, but he was able to get the reroute, reroute a couple things to limp into the next town that had a, a shop to, to fix the problem. But it, this goes in line with what you're saying. If you understand what's going on with your truck, if you're in a position where you're out of cell service, you can sometimes limp yourself in if you understand a couple of basic things, right. which I don't. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, <laughs> which it's a good reminder. I, it's I, a good I, reminder, you know? Yeah. If I think I just was able to, I think I just became a... <laughs> I think I just learned how to potentially change my tire if I had a flat tire. Uh huh. You know, that was back when dad, I always wondered because when I got older, dad only had one fuel tank on old blue. And it was so weird because he had one on the pass- driver's side. Passenger side was just this big, empty, open 
fact, we still have that, that aluminum fuel tank. It sat in the shop at the feedlot forever and ever. That's that one you finally brought over. Yeah. That was the second one. And the reason dad took it off was because those fuel line, the fuel tanks had a line that came out the bottom and they came over and they met right in the middle. So there's just these two lines that just sit in the open air under your truck. So, I mean, like a bird flies under there, a deer, a cow, a traffic cone. <laughs> it's like, it's just waiting right there to blow. And so I bet what he did when you're talking about, he probably had to cap one line off and get his truck to just suck from one tank. And then I think finally he said, forget this. It's called a crossover line. And he's like, I'm out and I'm, I'm, I'm done with the crossover. So he just had the one old tank <laughs> cruising across. So driving today, I was behind a, a big dump trailer. Okay. You've had some experience driving, pulling dump trailers, haven't you? Yep. Yeah. Do you own one or were you just using the one for the person you were driving for? I I had rented one for a short time out here for a, it was just kind of a seasonal gig that I got way back in the day hauling scrap iron. So I got a, I got a dump trailer for that. Which dumping a dump trailer can be a little bit hairy. Why don't you explain what a dump trailer is? So they make these, they, they technically call them end dumps and they're so sketchy and you know and it's funny because if you guys are listening back east we almost have we hardly have any of them out here back east you guys have them by like the zillions they use them to haul grain gravel like they're this very multi-functional trailer that can haul like anything as long as you can unload them and and what happens is you basically have this 40 foot long trailer and it has a huge hydraulic cylinder on the front so you get where you're going you go open the back gate up and you turn on your pump and it starts pumping oil into that cylinder. And this, this trailer, that's, you got to understand it's 40 feet long and at the front of it lifts up. Probably, I, I don't know how high they lift exactly feet wise, but it looks like they're about three, three and a half stories high once they're all the way up until the product starts dumping out. And usually, you know, you dump it on square ground and there's no wind. It's not too bad. Product runs out. But where it can get a little sketched is sometimes the product may kind of hang up in the front of the trailer, which when you're driving down the road, it's fine. But when it's lifted up in the air, you have like 20,000 pounds of product, you know, three, four stories up in the air and it gets a little top heavy and the whole rest of the load has come off. So it's just this unbelievably top heavy thing and they just start to teeter and you have about two seconds to get it back down before the whole thing topples over destroys the trailer and flips your truck halfway over early 2000s i worked for an organic fertilizer company in central california okay and we this company ran a couple dump trailers this company had a product based on humic acid that was manufactured but there was another component of this company where we handled organic based waste that was in reused on farmers fields for instance in the central valley the wineries out there when they're processing wine they have skins and stems that are a byproduct of of winemaking we would handle a lot of that and they also have their filter cake so you have diatomaceous earth that you run the wine through that filters and cleans the wine hold on i'm what word did you just use wine before that back up of you did Di- i say wine Die. Oh, diatomaceous earth. Yeah, that's, that's a lot for my, I think I blew a fuse when you said that in my brain. I was like, oh, hold on. That's a little too much. <laughs> diatomaceous. Diatomaceous earth. It's, it's basically a mind fossilized, very small animals. Okay. It's, so it's like fossil shells. Yeah. Ancient, you know, they mine it. It's a very good filtering medium. So a lot of swimming pools that when your pool water is running through a pool, a pool filter, mm-hmm. you have a, they're a diatomaceous earth filter. So you charge, you, you dump this diatomaceous earth into the, into the pool filters and it, it coats the filters and filters it. They use it in beer making, wine making. It's a big one. When the wine filters through it, you know, they use it for a certain amount of time and they have to take the used stuff out and, and put new diatomaceous earth in. So this diatomaceous earth from the wineries is full of, 
of sugar essentially. So you, okay, so you were taking the old diatomaceous. We would haul and so okay. diatomaceous earth is also a, a good soil supplement. There's a number of of benefits with diatomaceous earth and in fact most most garden centers will have small bags of diatomaceous earth to put on your home gardens, but we were dealing with it in huge quantities. I mean, we were some days we would take out 20 to 40 loads of a 25 ton trailer a day. On some I'm of these big wineries, Central Valley, California is like, I don't think people realize how much of the nation's foods and things come out of the Central Valley. So that's, those are examples of things that we would handle. And so then we did a lot of composting, a big composting operation. And then there was a, I wish I could remember what the product, the byproduct was, but it had been piled up for years and years and years. And they had a a literal mountain of it. I would say a couple thousand, maybe more truckloads of this stuff piled up that we hauled out of there. And we had renamed it CH20. I don't remember all the specifics of it, but when it had been piled up for years, it dried out and it was more, it was manageable. When it was fresh, it was a sludge. Okay. It was kind of solid, but still a sludge. I remember one, when there was, the route from where we were based out of to pick this stuff up, there was a quaint little central California town that you had to drive through to get there. And there, I, if I remember correctly, there was a truck route to bypass the town. Because they're trying to keep it quaint and nice. And, and then there's yeah. a, a, a nice main street that has a, a sharp 90 degree turn on the main street. Okay. And one of our truck drivers was in a, an end dump trailer. And he decided instead of, still have no reason, no idea why, instead of taking the truck route, he decided to take the truck through main street of the town. And he took the 90 degree turn a little fast and that sludge. Well, this was a load of sludge. Load of sludge in the trailer. No, 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 no. uh, That sludge shifted and you know, it, it has a liquid element to it. So when you go around a turn fast that sludge pushed up against the outside of the trailer. It's like energy in motion. It's going to keep going. He dumped this trailer on this 90 return on the main street of this little town, 25 tons of this sludge. Oh, and not on the truck route, not on the truck route. And he was on, he was on the, you know, the right hand lane and it tipped over right hand. So it tipped over on the sidewalk and all the sludge pushed up to about two or three feet. On all the windows and front doors of all the businesses oh, on Main Street. <laughs> oh no way! Uh, oh, so this was right. I remember I was just leaving for the day when the owner of the company called and said, "I'd <laughs> hook up the truck and trailer and get some shovels and drive over here." Get some shovels. He didn't fully articulate what not go the get situation the, was. Not go get the payloader. Not not go get some heavy equipment. It was. Bring your torches and pitchforks. So he had had, he had had a, another, another, uh, they got the truck picked back up and he had had a, a loader of some kind brought from somewhere and had most of the, most of it cleaned up, but they couldn't get that loader in close to all the businesses. So myself and a couple of the other guys so had to hand shovel that stuff. The shovels. But a shovel full of that stuff with that really heavy sludge it was extremely heavy and the trailer we were throwing it up into was about four feet off the ground. So we ended up loading the back end of this bumper pulled trailer very heavily. Okay. Cause yeah. And we were driving, it was a, it was a flatbed dually Dodge 3,500. Is there a bigger bigger than 3,500? They make a, yeah, they make a 4,500 for some like real heavy vocational. I think, I think we're in a 4,500 because it was anyway, I got in the passenger seat and this other guy was driving and we got up to about, about road speed in that bumper pull trailer loaded so heavy to the very back. The back. That trailer started just whips on back and forth. And I remember the, the back end of this truck was being swung back and forth across the <laughs> road. It was so spooky. Oh, that was a very oh. strong lesson learned on. Ooh not loading bumper pull trailers really heavy on the back end on the back you got to center that load yeah we had another driver who was hauling a load of compost in one of those those end dump trailers 
and he decided he was going to swing by his house and pour out a little compost in his yard. He wanted a little bit of this. Uh, now, so like an employee benefit kind of. An unasked or sneaky uh, benefit. So an assumed, but not no authorization on this one. He backed into his driveway and his driveway was a little bit, it basically could fit just a, a vehicle. And then it dropped off each side of the driveway. And so he, he backed in there and he opened that gate up and no compost came out. So he started lifting that thing. And for whatever reason, this compost wouldn't pour out. And so he ended up lifting a little higher than he should. And it dumped real fast on him. And it, it pushed the trailer over the edge of the embankment on his driveway. And he tipped the whole trailer over it. <laughs> this was a semi as well? Yeah. Oh. Tipped over the trailer and a semi right in his front yard. On an unasked yeah, uh, so he had to call. Drop. He had to call in and, <laughs> and say he tipped his trailer over. Oh, the boss had to be going. No, hold, hold on. You're where? Where? What yeah. are you doing there? What? What? Oh man. And uh, if you guys haven't, now's the chance where when this is when this episode's over, just take a minute and go open up the old YouTube. Two things to do. One, you can go watch this engine overhaul on my YouTube channel on Wild Wild West. Second is that you need to go look up and dump fails or end dump. Just type in end dump tip over and all this. If you're not quite putting together what we're talking about, it'll all become very clear, very fast. The last end dump story that you I have, have another one from the same company, Three. Not, not a tip over, <laughs> but so this company I worked for would handle any waste that we could could compost or get back onto fields we took it all i mean huge variety that's what i'm trying to think because compost like when we compost at home i'm thinking like you throw in like the apple peels or like banana you know peelings so anyone that would pay us to haul stuff off for instance there was a prison we parked a trailer out there all of their food waste from the prison went in the trailer like once a week we'd haul the trailer off and replace it through the Bay Area of California, there's a number of horse, or, horse arenas or, or horse boarding facilities who are always trying to figure out how to get rid of their horse manure. We take all that. There was a chicken processing plant that we took one load of, and then that was the end of it. That was, what was it? Do you remember? Like guts. Oh. So again, parked a big end dump trailer. Summertime in Central Valley, California, oh, warm. Hot, not warm, hot. Hot. So this trailer was parked outside of this chicken processing plant. And they fill it up with 25 tons of, of chicken guts. You know, they were processing chickens. And the idea was this was going to be incorporated into a compost pile. And, you know, just compost it, which that is a legitimate way to get rid of animal processing waste is composting it. Uh-huh. The driver who went and picked this up, I remember hearing on the radio him calling in extremely unhappy because of the smell of it <laughs> so you know if you guys I, we we kind of probably we kind of assume everybody knows the smell because we grew up around the pigs you know we'd always had dead pigs and you know cows that would die and and so we always dealt with at the feedlot if something died we'd put it in the back of the pickup and we'd haul it out to we had this little kind of this property out where we'd we'd take it out to the dead pile we dealt with animal stink, decay, rot, whatever you want to call it. it. We grew up around it. But if you haven't ever, and this is not something you can YouTube, I wish there's a way you could like bottle this up and let you smell it right now through the, through the speakers. The smell of rotting animal is, and different animals have different smells, but it's, it is unlike it can trigger your gag reflex just out of nowhere so fast where you're like, I'm fine. All of a sudden you're like, oh, oh, oh. and once it starts, you almost can't stop until you get away from it. So it is, if you haven't smelled this before, it is next time you maybe come across a deer on the side of the road, just stop for a second, roll your window down and then drive on. And you'll, uh, again, you'll, you'll get a little more appreciation for what this driver was saying on the radio. He got in and started dumping this stuff. Well, he backed into the compost pile, started dumping it. and. I don't know for sure how he ended up outside of his truck when he was dumping it. I don't know if he got out to check on something, but he, it hit the ground and splashed him on him, on him. And 
that was the last of them. He he left. He started walk. He he left the truck there. He left the trailer halfway up, and he left. <laughs> he just walked away from it. Walked away. He couldn't. He 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 quit immediately. The, the smell was so overwhelming. You guys, and this was back before like everyone and their dog would hire you as a trucker. Like you know, to walk away from your job <laughs> back then. You know, it's not like everyone needed a trucker. <laughs> yeah. That was we we never took anymore because it that we couldn't get rid of that smell of that compost pile. It took about a year before then, it totally yeah. dissipated. And the trailer, all that sits in the trailer and you take it to your next pickup and everyone's like, what? Yeah. 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 Because he'd park Everywhere trailers to be loaded. Yeah. I couldn't yeah. do it with that trailer. Yep. Yeah. So that was a, I remember actually that just rang one little bell, one little treasured memory I have of, of my older brother, Luke. I'm going to share this real quick for, cause I, I haven't thought of this in years. It's funny how memories get triggered so okay so you guys know rooster would buy hogs on monday that was the only day that he basically had them on the premises was monday monday night and tuesday and you know some of the condition of some of the some of the livestock that he would that he would purchase at times and things seemed okay on monday and for whatever reason a pig might get stressed out just from being in a new area or or, or get banged up if it was a boar it might get you know beat up by another boar and tuesday Usually everything would load, but sometimes, you know, something would have a, a problem and it wouldn't, it wouldn't get loaded. So we'd have to keep it there at the feedlot and try to kind of nourish it back to health, so to speak, or let it kind of heal from its, you know, its injuries or whatever from, from the other animals. And a lot of times though, those animals wouldn't make it and you'd come back, you know, maybe Wednesday and check and it, it would have passed on into the, uh, the piggy heaven in the skies. And so this is where we'd come up with having some dead animals to dispose of. And we had this little case tractor. I'm just dying to see if you remember this story or not once the, once the punch hits. But we had this little case tractor that was pretty new and nice. And we were too young to, to drive the tractor, but we were good enough to hook up chains. So you'd, what you do is you hook a chain around the, the dead animal and then you hook the chain onto the bucket. And then whoever was driving the tractor would raise the tractor up. And these were usually back in pens, you know, kind of down these narrow alleys. And it was always kind of a chore to get it out of the pen and, you know, up to where you could get it out of the, the corral system. So we got these out and I think we'd kind of pulled them all out into one spot where they were waiting to be loaded in the back of the pickup. And it was summertime, I believe. And this may have been one that had possibly sat in the sun for maybe two weeks before it got hauled out. And so you can imagine the, the, uh, the effects of nature were percolating within the carcass of this particular boar. And boars were tough because a boar, we told you how big they can be from, you know, five to 800 pounds. And so when you lift them up with the tractor, they, their body would stretch out and you almost couldn't, this little tractor almost wouldn't lift them high enough to get into the back of the pickup. And so Sometimes you were good at this, actually. You'd, you'd kind of rock the clutch a little bit and you could get it to swing and swing. And as the nose of that hog would swing forward, you'd let the bucket down simultaneously and it would kind of lay it into the back of the pickup. Remember this? Yes. So one of these boars, we chained it up and this thing stunk bad. I mean, it was bad. You'd, you'd go and you'd take a huge breath. You'd run in there. You'd hook the chain up, hope to not get any juices on your hands and then book it out of there. And you lifted the, you lifted the bucket up and something inside of this boar burst and it began to spray some kind of unknown juice at you on the tractor. And this tractor didn't have a cab on it and you couldn't get away. And I just, I still remember your face doing this, like you were like batting at the stream and you couldn't get away. It just, this carcass is just swinging slow side to side, just spraying you with, it probably wasn't that much, but in my youth, it seemed like you basically just got a gallon of boar juice. Do you remember this? I do remember just, that. Just sprayed on you. And that smell was, oh man. But you didn't bail. To Luke's credit, he did not bail off the tractor. He stuck with it and he got it loaded. I do remember that. I think what happened is getting it swinging, it hit against the front of the tractor and something poked, poked it. Ruptured it? <laughs> so it oh. had a string. I didn't know what it was at first. I I thought it was one of my siblings squirting me with water. It's like a little stream, yeah. <laughs> and I remember realizing what it was. It's oh. one of those things that you you can't get the smell off of you, 
Even though no one else can smell it on you, you can't get it off Mm -hmm. of you for an extremely long amount of time. It doesn't matter what you do. You've got that smell on you. You know what? That reminds me of another, another. You know what? Why not? Let's just, let's just (laughs) snowball it. Getting stuff on you that you feel like you can't get off. In dental school, we had head and neck anatomy. And. Oh, head. Okay. Head and neck. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the courses we take and it has a lab component where we, you walk into the lab and you're assigned a seat and you sit down at your seat and there is a human head that's basically cut off from the shoulders sitting on the table. And we have to wait like a, like a real human. This is like a modeling thing. Someone who's donated their body to medical science, medical research, whatever. So we have, yeah, right at shoulder level, a head, human head sitting there assigned to you and, Welcome to class. Here's Over the your next head. few weeks, we we dissect we dissect this this body or this not the body but the head from the head to essentially nothing left of it. So it's not a one day thing. This is like a progressive. Yep. And you just when you're done, you kind of you wrap your head up in a plastic bag, and so you come back to it. And so I I sat down at, at my table to become acquainted with my partner. I guess. <laughs> do you do you name the subject? Is that a little too human? I feel like they had an, I feel like we had the option of knowing their real name if we wanted to. Really? I feel like that was the case because some people had names. My patient partner, I don't know what you call it, was an extremely, extremely obese woman. <laughs> okay. I mean, it was just the reality. Her, her cheeks and her neck and, you know, was just very, a lot of, a lot of fat. Okay. So as we got further into this dissection, there was a, a point where we had to dissect the the muscles within the face and the neck. And I remember getting to this point and looking at this muscle and it reminded me of a heavily marbled steak. The amount of fat running through the muscles in her face, it was like an extremely marbled piece of steak. But no hunger pains. No hunger pains. No hunger pains. We were having this, I went to dental school in Arizona, hot. The lab we worked in was really hot. And so as work, you'd have gloves on and your gloves would fill up with sweat. You could feel the, the moisture in your gloves. And it was, it was more than just moisture. It got to the point you'd take your gloves off and your fingers were wrinkled up. Yeah. Like, yeah. But I mean, was, there's no reason to keep switching gloves out. And so as, as I was dissecting these muscles that were heavily marbled, I was noticing how the heat from the room, the heat from my hands, was melting the fat in these muscles a little bit on this. So the marbling was, I don't want to be too like crude here because this was a human, but this is like when you cook bacon, the grease is from the fat melting. And like if you've, if you butchered a, a pig, you know, pigs are, you know, if they're finished good, they have a lot of fat on them and, and handling the fat when you're butchering, it will melt to some degree. Yeah, not like it's not like pouring out. It doesn't. Like it doesn't look like cooked grease, but yeah. it starts to liquefy. Okay, I had noticed that and got done for the day. And as, as I'm kind of wrapping up and putting things away, I noticed the palm of my glove had a big rip in it, and I hadn't noticed it throughout <laughs> oh, no. the day. Oh no! So I pulled my glove off, and I had a coating of of that fat that had liquefied. It gone in the palm of my glove and down the fingers of my glove. And so my fingers had a coating of this fat on them. <laughs> I think it was like dipping your fingers in candle wax. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I, I mean, I scrubbed and scrubbed and scrubbed. I felt like for a, a two weeks, I felt like I couldn't get the film of that off of my hands. Similar to the smell of that bore. I couldn't, <laughs> I felt like I couldn't get it off of me. You know, when like you put water, like if you've been handling food meat at home and you go to wash your hands and it. Like after making burgers and it just, the water kind of beads and runs off. It was like that. It was like you that. Had your own. But you know, you get enough heat and you know, a, a detergent of some kind, you know, that, that breaks that fat up. It, of course I got it off, but it, there was that psychological component that I felt like I couldn't get it off. Oh, you know, the best thing for uh, grease removal, and this is another truckers and mechanics tip, Dawn dish soap. It is the, like you can buy all the fancy whatever hand things you want, the authority in grease removal is Dawn dish soap. So you might, as an alumni, you might think about sending some kind of a message back that recommends 
little Don dish soap to keep there on hand. I will take that. <laughs> That's so gross. You guys got to remember, this was a human. Oh. Yeah. Your hands have never been so soft. My hands have never been so soft. Last thing I wanted to catch up with you on is you had, oh, a few months back on Instagram, you had been talking a lot about the speed limiter regulations that were trying to be pushed through. There was a big open forum for people to comment on it. And I haven't seen you post or, or say much about that in a while. Right, right. Yeah, it's good. Catch everybody up. So let me recap what it was for those of you that don't know. The recap would be that there's a governing body in the government called the FMCSA. That's the initials. I won't bore you with the full name. But it's the FMCSA and they create the rules for the trucking industry. And usually before they'll create a new rule, and just remember this, this is the thing to remember throughout all this. This is a group of people who were not elected. They aren't people that ran. It's not, this isn't your, you know, senators and representatives in Washington, D.C. making a, a law. These are people that were just appointed to be in these positions. Okay. So they're completely unelected. But anyway, they, they make rules for the trucking industry. And before they make the rules, they, they send out a proposal, they call it. So in that proposal, they say, we, the FMCSA, are proposing such and such rule. We're going to open the, the door to the public to comment for a certain period of time, usually a couple of weeks, and, and you get a chance to go and comment and speak your piece, right? Whether you're for or against this rule. Well, we got a couple months back, a few months back, they slipped out, and not a lot of people even know about this, but they slipped out a proposal that is going to put or is hoping to put speed limiters on all trucks. Now, they haven't set a speed limit yet of what the, the limit will be, but the limit will be slower than cars and traffic. So the reason, personally, we don't like this rule is because when trucks travel slowly and cars travel swiftly, two different speeds can create situations like rooster having trying to let that car merge and running over the traffic cones. So they put this proposal out and they said, we're going to have this comment period for this window. I heard about it, you know, shortly before the comment period was going to be over. So I posted a video on the YouTube channel about it that talks a little more detail about it. You can find it back there about a speed limiter mandate on my YouTube channel. But basically I asked everybody on YouTube to, and Instagram both to go and comment on this because this is stuff you guys, it's not because we as truckers want to drive fast. It's not, I don't drive fast. I drive slow because I want good fuel mileage. I almost never drive the blazing speed, but there are times that I need to be able to drive the speed limit or a little faster. For example, when cars are merging, you can see a bunch of cars getting ready to get on the ramp and you're like, if I kick it in the ribs, I'll be way ahead of all this. Or you know, maybe someone, someone's getting ready to pull out in front of you. There, there's different scenarios. I won't go through all those little details, but there's times where you need to be able to be free to move your rig as a professional driver. And this takes away your ability to decide when and where your truck needs to, to travel. And so we, we put out this call to action and like tons and tons of you guys went out and commented on this. And I didn't really know if this was going to do anything. But on YouTube, I, I, my numbers are a little skewed now. I'm just trying to remember to the best of my knowledge. But we got, you know, 10 or so thousand, 12,000 views, I think, on YouTube. And I don't know how many of those views actually went and commented. But a little article comes out in the news a few weeks after this that says the FMCSA has extended the comment period by double due to an overwhelming tidal wave of the public commenting about this proposed rule. And I can guarantee that it wasn't people commenting in favor of it. So that's, that's where it stands right now. They extended the comment period. I think a lot more people went and commented. And from here now, they basically take into consideration those comments and they'll tweak their proposal and then they'll put out another proposal for people to comment on again. And then from those proposals, they will decide on what they call a final rule. So there'll be another chance. Hopefully it just gets thrown out because of the massive amount of people against it. If not, they'll tweak the rule and they'll repropose it. But some of the stuff, just like one of the things real quick that bothered me as I dug into this, it, it's just designed to bury people like us, small, tr small trucking outfits. They have a basically a, 
a little amendment in there that allows for a higher rate of speed if you have certain technologies on your truck. Collision avoidance technology. So for example, if you're if you're Jackson and you have an old cab over, you can drive 60. If you are a Swift driver with a brand new Freightliner Cascadia from 2023 that has collision avoidance, you can drive 70 because your truck has collision avoidance. And the only people that have these newest, latest, greatest technologies is these mega companies. And so it was just those kind of examples that you see this is this is just not it's just geared to to put us at a disadvantage which we're already at versus these these mega carriers I'm really hopeful that as we go along we can we can affect change and and some people in the comments are pretty negative saying good for you for putting this out but it doesn't matter what we say they're going to do what they want but i i truly like in my core believe that if there's enough pushback we'll hold them at bay it might not completely eliminate it but it might hold it at bay. And I say that because in the cattle hauling world, we still don't have electronic logbooks. We fought that off for cattle hauling. Everybody else has had them for years now. And in the cattle world, we put our foot down and say, you just can't do this. And people comment and you know, really push hard. These cattle organizations are behind that. So a speed limiter, does that mean anyone that has trucks will have to go have a speed limiter put on their vehicle? Correct. Who co- do you cover the cost of it yourself? Correct. Yep. Which can be, depending on what technology they decide to use, a lot. I mean, you can't go to a, a diesel shop to have anything done for less than $1,000. They, they want to look at your truck, open the computer up. It costs you. So you're going to have to put a speed limiter on your truck and you're going to have to cover the cost of it. Right. Cat, let's talk about cattle hauling. Is there, are there implications to having speed, limit, speed limiters on cattle trucks? Yeah, big implications for for you people out there. Let's talk about that first. You, the implications for you guys is your meat in the stores, which is already outrageously high priced, is going to be higher priced. Let me explain why. Right now, I can haul cattle from Montana to Nebraska in one push, or Montana to Kansas in a push. Um, like I say, I do like to drive slow when I can, but you can't always drive slow. If I'm going to a place that's closer where I can get there in a reasonable time, I'll drive slower. When I'm running to Kansas, when I'm running to Eastern Nebraska, Texas, it's hammer down. You're pushing the limits of everything because you have live animals on. So for example, if I can't drive 70 or 75 on those freeways to Texas, that means I'm going to have to drive part way and stop and unload my cattle, put them in a receiving yard somewhere, pay someone to feed those cattle, take care of them for the night while I reset and get ready for the next day. I'm going to probably have to go clean my trailer out, potentially, depending how dirty those cattle were. And all of these costs, I'm not paying for them. And nobody in the industry wants to pay for this. You guys end up having to pay for it. And so that's just a very basic example in the cattle world of how a speed limiter being mandated in the cattle world. But even in the, in the food world, in the grain world, in the reefers hauling apples, hauling tomatoes, it all is the same. If, if, if they're having to take more time, the more time they're on the road, the higher the cost for transportation. The higher the cost for transportation, the higher the cost, retail cost of those goods, which is you guys. Now, if you look at big trucking companies who have all new trucks with you know, collision avoidance systems, for instance, how many of those companies are call, hauling cattle? Zero. 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 Yep. None. And so that's, that's kind of the point is that the companies who don't have to deal with this are not hauling some of the stuff that you need, your food, your meat. And, and if they decide to step into that world, let's, let's use the reefers, for example. Say they step into the reefer world, refrigerated trailers. They will, they'll do it by putting teams together. They'll say, well, we're going to put team drivers on this. They'll drive 65, but they'll drive nonstop because we've got teams. Again, if two people are in that truck, the cost of your goods are way higher because a team drivers get way more money than solo drivers. And for us, we don't have that option to put team drivers in. Where am I going to find it? Let alone someone I can, first of all, live with in a truck. <laughs> I'm not doing that. And second of all, where would I even find one in central Montana? And, and on top of that, if you got team drivers, in, that's two people that have to make a living now out of one vehicle. So how much more does that vehicle got to run? 
twice as much, right? More time on the road, less time at home, less quality of life. All of that translates into higher rates, which translates into higher retail costs for the public. Yeah. Do you know if, do you know if any of Montana's elected officials are aware of this? Because cattle industry is a big industry in Montana. Do you know if any of our elected officials are aware of, of this? If I remember correctly, I did email our senators and I believe, well, one of our senators. <laughs> and I believe that they said they were on top of it. I also spoke to our local auction barn owner here who's tied in with the, with the National Livestock Marketing Association. And he said on the livestock end, they are very aware of it. They've got some pretty focused lobbying efforts. But those lobbying efforts will just be for livestock. They're not going to lobby for reefers and such to, you know, to not be affected by this. So you do need to, you do need to Google this, you need to research this and you need to now, because you can't comment on it, you do need to talk to your, you know, your senators, your representatives that are in Washington, DC and, and make sure they understand how this is going to affect your life. Should it be enacted? Not only the cost thing, here's the other deal you're going to deal with. All truckers are forced to drive on the same hour, the same, roughly the same hours. Okay. Like 90% of the trucks on in the US are all going to drive from, you know, seven in the morning until five in the afternoon. That's kind of their, their deal. All these people sleep at the same time. They all sleep at truck stops at the same time. They all sleep at rest areas at the same time. If they all are limited to the exact same maximum speed, which virtually they will be, they're all leaving the truck stops at the same moment getting on the freeway. In this one hour window at each truck stop, you're going to have 200 semis getting on the freeway that are all driving 65 miles an hour. And no truck drives in an identical 60. One drives 64.9, one drives 65. And I can promise you that they don't care about the cars behind them. You're going to end up with these huge mega convoys of trucks all getting onto the nation's roadways every morning at the same time and just driving side by side at 0.1 mile an hour trying to pass and cars, you, you guys will lose your minds. You'll have trucks backing up cars for, for miles, which is again, a safety thing. Now I've seen in some of your comments on your social media where you've talked about this, some European drivers said, what's the big deal? We've had speed limits forever. And, and we're just fine. You're right. They have. And that, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because I'd forgotten this. I'm not trying to say this in a way that's like us versus you, but it, it, it's comparing apples to oranges. They're two entirely different creatures, meaning that I regularly, I'm going to do my best to do my kilometer conversions, but I regularly haul stuff 1,800 kilometers one way. Now. Any of you in Europe listening, I want you to think about what is 1,800 kilometers away from you right now. If you live in London, what city is 1,800 to 2,000, sometimes even 2,200 kilometers away from you? And imagine having to deliver a load in a timely fashion, especially livestock, to that city or that region and I think it'll really blow your mind to see just how far across. I think you'll find that I may be driving from, from England to Russia or, <laughs> or wherever. You'll have to look on your maps over there, but they just don't compare if, you know, for example, like the entire UK, the whole United Kingdom isn't even the state of Montana, just Montana. And just the state of Montana is just one small part of our regular trips that we make. So like you, you said it just a little bit ago, if you're having a short haul where you're not pushed for time, you, you purposely drive slower for gas mileage. But if you've got to, if you've got to get from Montana to Nebraska with a load of live cattle, you got to push a little harder. I would say that the European speed limiters are probably a little bit similar to where you said, if you're going a short, shorter haul, you purpose, you, you are consciously and purposely driving slower for gas mileage. It's not as big of a deal, but when you've got long distances. Right. And there's a lot of Europeans that agree with this. I've had a lot of Europeans comment on YouTube and be like, we've had them here and just run away. 
do not let this happen in your country because we have this year and it's awful. And I feel for you guys. I mean, that's that's what you're. It's the reality you have to live with every day over there. And and I'm with you up in Canada. They've tried this in Canada, and I think only one of I think Ontario is the. I'm pretty sure it's Ontario is the only province that has a speed limit, or all the rest of them. It just like this just doesn't work because they're in the same boat we are. There, I mean, Canada's it's spread out. Probably even a little wider than we are. All right, I got to get on the road. You got to yeah. get back to building the semi. Yeah, we got to put the, on the overhaul. For those of you interested, we're just getting ready to put the head back on, the new head. And James is probably down there patiently waiting because I got to run the, the skid steer. We're doing this ranch style. Most most shops have an overhead crane to uh, very carefully lower the head onto the motor. We've got the Kubota skid steer and a pretty fine right hand here. So <laughs> we'll see. If you need to get a hold of us, steady at the wheel podcast on Instagram, steady at the wheel podcast at gmail.com. We do have a website up. It is uh, steady at the wheel dot castos dot com, C A S T O S. And then Jackson. Yeah, uh, on YouTube, if you want to follow some adventures of what's going on on the ranch, feel some of the old school trucking. Wild Wild West is the name of the channel. And on Instagram, you can find me at shamanush. S-H-U-M-U-N-U-S-H for a good time. All right. Again, everyone who's listening, we thank you for your support and we'll catch you next time.